Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. The mayor of St. Louis has pledged to invest $150 million of federal COVID relief money in the city's north side. And while Tina Peel applauds the move, she says the most important thing will be to spend the money in an equitable and thoughtful fashion. The 17th Ward Alderwoman joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Lippman. And joining me today in the studio is Tina Sweet Tea Peel. And uh, Alderwoman Peel represents the 17th Ward in the city of St. Louis. And for those who may not be quite as familiar with the geography of the city as both of us are, where roughly are the boundaries of the 17th Ward? Uh, the 17th Ward is uh, between Lindell, Kings Highway, 44, and Vandevender. Uh, the biggest neighborhoods are Central West End, Botanical Heights, and Forest Park Southeast. Tina Peel is a first-time guest on the show, and we like to give them a chance to in, first-timers to introduce themselves. So, Alderwoman, tell us a little bit about Tina Peel. Who, who are you and what should people know? Well, I was uh, born in Canada. Uh, my parents adopted me when I was 10 months old. I was a premature baby, um, and I was a fighter. Um, I was two and a half pounds, and uh, the doctors didn't think that I was going to be talking or walking. And uh, actually, uh, I had been an elite athlete. Um, I trained for the Olympics uh, in 2004 as a freestyle wrestler, and I came in number four in the country was my uh, best ranking. I want to just make note that my parents adopted me, and they're both white, and it has been something that is most influential in my life. I've looked at you know, bridging the divides because of that. Uh, they were pioneers in terms of uh, adopting outside of their race, and uh, I want to give back. And so I have given back for the last 20 years. I've been working in nonprofits. I've been director of community building organizations, especially housing. And uh, what lends me to this work also is that I have a bachelor's in architecture in low-income housing from Yale University and a master's in city planning from MIT. And so uh, it has allowed me to hit the ground and running in this office. Sweet Tea is a nickname that you include here. You include it in your emails and correspondence. I think it's in like your Twitter name. Where does that nickname come from and why do you lean into it so much? Uh, it comes from a, a friend of mine uh, when I was living in Denver uh, about uh, 15 years ago. 
And uh, they called me Sweet Tea. And then one day uh, I decided, you know, I like that name. I like to be called Sweet Tea. It makes people smile. It makes me smile. It's a positive affirmation. And so uh, I have used it. Now, what drew you to wrestling and then to stay with the sport long enough and involved enough to, you know, attempt to wrestle for your country in the Olympics and make it to, you know, being fourth in the nation? Well, I had a dream to go to the Olympics uh, when I was 10 years old, and I played actually soccer before, and I was um, probably one of the top 10 goalkeepers in the country in the 90s. Uh, But women's soccer was not in the Olympics at that time when I graduated from uh, college. And so when I went to graduate school at MIT, I was just thinking, I really want to go to the Olympics. I want to try. And I saw that women's wrestling was a new sport in the Olympics, and I knew I was a great athlete. And so um, I picked up that sport uh, within two years, and I was a walk-on to the Olympic team at the United States Olympic Training Center. When you see opportunities, you need to take them in that moment. Um, And I saw that, and I I took that opportunity, and it was the best thing I could do. You mentioned you worked with a lot of nonprofits, and I know that you had been involved in politics at the neighborhood level before deciding to run for office in the city, but that's the city is a whole different ballgame. What pushed you to go into that level of elected politics? Well, um... It is something that uh, I've thought about actually when I was in college um, and then uh, kind of it went away and then actually neighbors asked me. Um, And I was looking at after Michael Brown was killed, uh, things had shifted in my life too in terms of that. And I was looking at ways I could um, help in terms of systemic change. As I mentioned before, I've been in nonprofits for a long time and I felt like I needed to do something on a bigger level. And I felt that running for older women would be that way in which I can create this systemic change on a larger level. Your margin of victory to get to the board was so close. I know it was like 20 votes or less ended up being the final margin of victory. Um, what went through your mind on election night as you're looking at that total and thinking, my goodness, that is tight? So f- through the whole campaign um, from the start, Um, I just was looking actually at, you know, if the universe wants me to do this, this is going to happen. And so I started campaigning with that attitude. um, And I um, just worked my buns off in terms of campaigning. And even that night, it was, I put it up to the universe. And we worked really hard. I thank my volunteers who helped me out. And it all came together at the end. And when your opponent, Michelle Sherrata, said she would not be seeking a recount, which she would have been within her rights to do, what was it to know that, you know, that was finality, that, you know, once the election was certified, you would go to the Board of Aldermen and be sworn in? I was really excited uh, that it happened. And I, I look at it that this is where I should be at this point in my life. Um, as a city planner, it's bringing everything together. Um, from my schoolwork to my experience, that I'm able to do things um, that I couldn't do uh, as uh, a nonprofit director. So it is just the perfect timing. You had a very interesting and unique first year in office. I think it was almost all virtual except for, for two meetings. What was the biggest surprise about that first year? 
Well, my I guess my my biggest surprise um, would be that we weren't you know virtual that long, um, and so what I like I mean we're now back into session um, uh, in the last week, and I like being with my colleagues. I could see that um, we're going to be able to connect more, and we could have conversations um, that we weren't able to have when we were always on on virtual. One of the bills that you carried in the last session was a bill to rename a street in the medical complex after Helen Nash. How did this pioneering physician get on your radar? So um, Helen Nash was um, a doctor, and she had trained um, a lot of doctors uh, in the St. Louis area. And also in terms of health care and as a doctor, she also um, provided services to a lot of African-Americans. And it was something that uh, Washington University wanted to do in terms of renaming a street and honoring her. And uh, as I learned more about her, I did not know much about her uh, in terms of renaming the street, is that she has been really influential, not only as a pioneer, as a doctor in serving um, patients, but also in terms of mentoring. And I think that is incredible because her legacy just stays uh, here in St. Louis. Did it kind of surprise you at all that it hadn't been done? Well, I think that um, in terms of honoring individuals, uh, I think that because of um, what we have is that there's history that isn't told. And so it's not a surprise um, in terms of honoring her now. It should have been before. But there's so much history of incredible um, black people who have done a lot for the city and the nation that have has not gone um, or has been unseen. Who is your sort of big unsung hero, as Helen Nash may be, to the black medical community that you would want to honor in that same way? It would be my parents, um, especially uh, my mom, uh, because of adopting me. And uh, she adopted uh, four black kids. And they also, my parents, went to court in terms of my little sister. And when I watch um, Loving vs. Virginia and the film, that's what happened in 1982 uh, in my family. And so uh, because they were white, um, the state did not want uh, my parents to adopt my sister, Crystal. And they did win. Uh, I was about 13 years old. And uh, it was tremendously impacted. And what I would like to say regarding transracial adoptions is that um, if a kid needs a home, it doesn't matter who they get adopted about by. It's all about love. I know there's a different, um, different mindsets in terms of transracial adoption. Um, and I just want to say the first thing is let's provide um, kids a good nurturing home. And I could see what has happened with myself. How have the divides that you have had to bridge in your own personal lives, do you think contributed to your ability to understand the city of St. Louis and what needs to be done to work to make the city better? Yeah, I believe that um, in terms of being uh, in the minority group in many uh, different facets of my life, um, you know, being a woman, being black, um, being a transracial adoptee, being in the LGBT community, 
and also having a, a learning disability. Um, I feel that in terms of all of that, I understand what it's like to have to do better. And I'm always fighting in terms of that for the city and for others. It's all about resources. And if you have enough resources, you're able to get to your dreams and where you want to go. You have a guiding philosophy that you call ACE. What does that mean? Well, ACE comes out of, um, it is, stands for accountability, community, and equity. And I see that that is something that I have lived my life through. Um, again, coming from my parents and how they have maneuvered. And uh, I feel that if we all live um, through these types of principles, then we will make a better city and we will make the right decision. And we need to be accountable. Um, we need to make sure that um, people make check us to make sure that things are happening. We need to have community. If we don't have community and we don't have the collective, we're not going to get stronger. And then equity, well, you know, uh, provides, you know, the balance um, for everyone. Is there a piece of legislation that you sponsor during your first term that you think is the best demonstration of these principles in action? Yes, the uh, uh, Board Bill 71, 72, and 73 uh, is the uh, Board Bill in terms of the equitable development contribution. And so what that is is that um, for the uh, city foundry, the developer, um, has provided $1.8 million to the city, which will go into the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, and it will um, assist in affordable housing repair. And $900,000 is going to be going to north of Del Mar, and $900,000 will go for affordable housing repair uh, in the 17th Ward. And it was uh, something that I decided to split this up because um, we need to get more resources to the north side. And I felt that that is a way to bridge the divides. Um, and it's a way to um, make the city stronger um, to spread the wealth. Is this something that you would want to include in all development bills that you may get through and hope other aldermen adopt as sort of like a citywide policy? Yeah, there needs to be a citywide uh, standard policy. Um, and so that would be something that, you know, I'm looking to do. Uh, and it is the way that a lot of other cities have um, been able to increase the affordable housing and workforce development. Uh, and I see that uh, the 17th Ward and the Central Quarter, it is as strong uh, in terms of economics uh, as a lot of these vibrant cities around the country. So the 17th Ward does pop up in a lot of conversations around equitable development in terms of how incentives are used. When you look at the ward, it's obvious to see how those incentives have helped build the ward. But are there ways that you're looking at it and saying that the incentives may have harmed the ward as well? Well, one of the things that uh, we need to look at is displacement. And so as we do economic development uh, and with incentives, uh, to build up communities, because Forest Park Southeast and the 17th Ward were not like what it is now. And so uh, these incentives were really needed at one time. And over the last few years, um, I don't believe it has been needed as much. Um, however, we've been giving them out um, the same way. Um, 
Nicole Galloway's report, who audited um, TIFs, um, talked about how incentives are being used or abused. And so, you know, in terms of what we need to do is we need to start early when we are revitalizing neighborhoods to see and look at how to not displace residents. And so I believe that as the north side develops, we need to look at that um, in terms of not displacing residents. You were at the Mayor's State of the City address where she announced Mm -hmm. a planned infusion of $150 million in federal ARPA funding for North St. Louis. What was your initial reaction when you heard about that investment? And as more details have come out, has your fundamental reaction changed in any way? Well, I think that is um, an an amazing, um, amazing decision that the mayor made. And I'm glad that, you know, someone is looking at economic justice. And I feel that that decision that she made really shows that she knows what's going on and she means it in terms of creating economic justice. I mean, that's $150 million. And so one of the things uh, you know, I would like to see is that um, uh, let's look at how we can use this best um, and what would, will be the plan with this. Um, I am a city planner, and so you know, one of the things I feel even what I'm doing now is that you know, having a comprehensive plan on how are we going to develop this city. What do we want this city to look like in 50 years? That should be the conversation. That should be some of the questions that we're asking. You know, who do we want in the city? How is this city going to be better? Um, and so we need to look at the long term. And I feel that that is one of the things we should even look at, even though the ARPA money needs to be spent in a certain amount of time. But how long term is it going to help us? How would you, as Alderwoman Tina Peel, answer those questions that you just had? Well, I would like to see, um, and we haven't seen it, is that we're losing population, but we need to keep people here. And so we need to have better schools um, so that people are here. We need to have um, a diversity in housing. So what we have now is a lot of the housing that's being built, I would say about 85% of it in the central quarter are studios, and one bedrooms. How are we going to keep a family here in the city of St. Louis when um, we have young people then growing families? They're going to be moving out. And then we have this this, uh, school system. And we want to make it stronger because that's where um, families move. They move where their children are going to be and where there's going to be strong um, school systems. And so uh, that's what I'm, I'm looking at is how do we keep the people here and our assets here And how do we attract people? Because that's what happens with um, larger cities at this point in time, is that we need an influx of the people from outside, and then we also need to make sure that the assets that we have inside are here. Do you think there is an appetite at the Board of Aldermen to kind of really rethink the way that the city does development and put an equitable lens on it as opposed to just, you know, they're here, we should be glad they're here developing, let's give them the incentive to do so? I think that there has been a culture shift. Um, I think with uh, the new administration, I think the equitable development contribution has had a lot to do with it. And some of the things that Mayor Jones has done in terms of looking at the incentives a lot closer and not approving everything. Um, and I also know that uh, there are older people that are, have been looking at this prior to me being an older person. And so uh, I just had the opportunity 
in terms of being in the 17th Ward, but uh, this has been worked on before, and I think that um, the individuals we have in office have helped in terms of, yes, this is going to move forward. And we'll be right back after this quick break. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Alderwoman Tina Peel. And Alderwoman, included in your ward is an apartment complex where there were a lot of fentanyl overdoses and injuries recently. Um, How should the city be addressing the concern of fentanyl in the drug supply in its city and the need that people have to, to use drugs and then potentially be harmed by fentanyl there? Yeah, um, unfortunately, we had uh, six deaths uh, in the Central West End at the beginning of February. And it was um, six deaths of fentanyl uh, on a Saturday. And then we had another death um, a day after. And because of that, uh, we're starting an initiative in the 17th Ward called the Harm Reduction Plan. And we're kicking it off this Saturday, um, April uh, 30th, from... Uh, 1 to 4 p.m. at Cortex at 4220 uh, Duncan. And what we're going to do is it's going to be a listening session, um, listening to the public regarding the opioid crisis that's not just in the 17th Ward, but throughout the city and throughout the country. And so we're going to listen to what are the needs and how they see we can um, mitigate these circumstances. And it's a public health issue. Um, and how do we get the services to individuals who are um, on drugs or want to get off drugs? Um, and we are not getting those services to those individuals because I believe some of the deaths could have probably been mitigated with, um, like, Narcan. So I think it is about education and getting resources to individuals, and that's what we're going to be looking at um, starting on our kickoff event um, with Harm Reduction Plan. I just want to make note that this is not just myself um, working on this, but also uh, the office of Cori Bush and Representative um, Kimberly Ann Collins and SLU University's Criminology Department with Professor Kenya Broomfield-Young. And and so as you maybe started looking into the issue of uh, drug use, drug uh, substance use disorder, why you know, people may turn to this. What were the gaps in the resources that just from your own research you started realizing were out there and perhaps need to be addressed uh, from a legislative angle? Well, I think uh, one of the biggest things is that um, it's about knowing and educating yourself. Where are the treatment centers? Um, What are the barriers of individuals being able to get to treatment centers? You know, it's usually childcare. And, you know, we need to provide uh, those different resources so individuals can access that. Also, where are those services being provided? Where are people comfortable in terms of uh, getting those services? Uh, So I think we need to really look at, you know, what the individual needs are and what they need and listen to them. You know, it's not about um, me knowing what to do, but it's about us 
talking with the community. Do you have an idea yet of what it might look like legislatively, or are you still really just trying to listen and learn from the community where the needs are? It's not about legislators, and it's not about um, the uh, public safety professionals um, or health professionals. And I think that's really important. It's not a us and a them. It's a we. It's a community. And for us to um, mitigate these circumstances and also the economic justice circumstances is that we need to have community healing. We need to work together. And so an initiative, um, another initiative that I'm starting in the 17th Ward is that I'm creating a community public safety committee. And what that is is uh, citizens are getting together to discuss different public safety issues um, related to the ward and how can we mitigate that. And one of the things that we have seen is that when there are circumstances that have come up uh, in my year, uh, when the community has reached out to some of the um, individuals that have done these infractions, there's not this, what are you going to do about it? You know, like, what am I going to do about it as a legislator? We all have to come together and uh, work at um, stopping these issues. And what does public safety mean to you? When I look at uh, public safety, it's, uh, one, it's the public health and how can we make ourselves a healthier community. And because uh, of circumstances in terms of, uh, I, I I look at, you know, our, our communities can be safer. Um, and, you know, th- the biggest um, reason I believe it's not is because of how we started out as a nation. Um, and so I see that, you know, oppression and racism has a lot to do in terms of um, what we have now and what is here. You know, we as black folks were not able to go to school um, and look at the school system now in a lot of these cities um, and places. You know, we have weak school system. And so we need to work as a collective and as a community to look at the community health. Um, And it's not about just locking individuals up. Um, That is just um, a Band-Aid. It's like, what is the whole system looking like? And where do you think is the biggest systemic change that the city of St. Louis needs to make when it comes to public safety? Well, I think that um, St. Louis actually is on the right direction as we're having um, programs like Cure Violence coming to the city. And so I feel that um, what we're doing um, and just talking to some of the uh, administrators and staff um, in the city is that we're looking at the resources and how we can have wraparound services to individuals um, so that they can have hope um, so that they can dream um, because, you know, when we're in this um, problem of uh, safety issues, et cetera, it's, it's because I feel individuals don't have that ability to think outside of where they're at. And so we need to make sure that we are able to um, look at, uh, you know, different ways that uh, we could see how life can be. So barring some completely unlikely scenario, the Board of Aldermen will go from 28 to 14 members in 2023. 
What do you see as being the biggest need once that happens in terms of you guys being able to continue to do the jobs that you have now that you'd be serving twice as many constituents? Yeah, so one of the things uh, in in this current job um, with 28 older uh, people is that uh, one of the things in, in my job is that there is a lack of resources, actually. And I feel that uh, if we don't have the adequate n- amount of staff uh, assisting uh, the alder um, and the adequate resources, um, it's going to be a very difficult and challenging job, even more difficult than what it is now. And so um, that is my hope that that's going to happen. I, I feel that um, we can do good things with 14, but if we don't have the resources, then I think it, it may not be as good. Were you, I don't want to say surprised, but I'll say surprised. Were you surprised when the map came out with the 14 wards and they basically decided to leave you alone? Uh, in terms of the drawing of the map, you know, one of the things that the citizens wanted was uh, to make sure that the neighborhood stayed intact. And so I feel that in terms of uh, the ward that I'm in, uh, in the new uh, ward, the new ninth, uh, that, you know, this was the best way to make sure that the neighborhood stayed intact. Almost uh, 80% of the neighborhoods uh, in these new wards are going to be intact. So it would be, you know, difficult to, um, have the map, I think, drawn a, a different way. I mean, there were various ways in which uh, the ward was drawn out, but it actually, um, instead of being compact, it was too long. And so there were, had to be some revisions from the first map to what is presently um, the finalized map. Do you expect that you'll seek the new ninth ward seat in 2023? You know, at this time, I am focusing uh, on my job here uh, in the 17th, uh, and I, I'm, I'm planning to look at, you know, what's going to transpire uh, as the days come. There's often a discussion, maybe not among the alders themselves, but within the community of what the role of an alder person is. Is it intended to be a legislator or is it intended to be more of a constituent service role? How do you see that role? Are you guys just there to kind of make policy for the city or are you there to ensure that people get their trash picked up and push for that to happen? So, you know, the role has, I think, changed and morphed and gotten bigger. And so when uh, older people uh, started, uh, it was more of a legislative. But now it is um, constituent services. Um, It's legislative. You know, it's also um, doing uh, street uh, infrastructure improvements. Um, and so there's a lot more to it now. And I feel that for me, I'm trying to juggle all of them. I mean, I also have so much development in this ward that that's a fourth thing, uh, in terms of this ward. So it's juggling all of those balls as best as possible. But the most important, you know, at this is the constituents, um, and service servicing them. And economic development and planning all of that in your word could be just even another full-time job. Well, Alderwoman Tina Peel, we thank you for joining us today on Politically Speaking. Where can people find you on social media, Twitter or other various places? Well, the best site um, to go to is my website. And then you could find me on uh, my Twitter feed and my 
Facebook feed is on my website, and my website is uh, www.tinasweettpeel.com. And one of the things I like about my website is that it has a lot of information regarding um, board bills uh, and activities and events. Uh, and then for those of people who don't have Twitter or Facebook, just go on to my um, website page and you could access it there. And I'm on Twitter at rlipman. That's two P's and two N's. You can stay updated on what's going on with Peel and her aldermanic colleagues. For all of our stories, go to our website, stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Until next time, so long.